If you brought a copy of the Bible, please turn to our New Testament reading, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. If you're new to the Bible, just use the table of contents. It's a lot easier than hunting around for it blindly in the dark. It's a big, complicated book. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. And today we've come to the end of this letter that we as a church have been going through, reading and studying and praying through for the last four months. And here at the end, in this letter to the Philippians, we once again see that God has so much to teach us about becoming a missionary church. And here at the end of the letter, Paul brings up a theme for missionary churches that he touched on at the very beginning in a kind of tantalizing way, but he saved it until the very end to open it up. And that theme is money. You see, the letter to the Philippians was just one giant thank you note for a financial gift that the Christians in the city of Philippi had sent to Paul, who was 300 miles away sitting in jail in Ephesus. Now, when Paul is writing this letter back to them to say, hey, I received the money, thank you. It's important to remember that when you were in jail in the Roman Empire at this time, the Roman Empire was very generous with lodging. They didn't charge you for the jail cell, but they did not supply you any food or clothing. They were stingy on that end. And so the only way to survive Roman jail was to have friends and family who would take the risk to give money to the jailer who would definitely tell you, oh yeah, I'll take care of this money. I'll make sure it gets to Jeremy back in the, you know, way back there. And that, that money, if it did make its way to you, was the only way you could get food or clothing or medical necessities. So these Christians who lived in the city of Philippi, they loved Paul. And they sent money because he was in jail so that he could live, so that he could survive. And the letter of Philippians is, is a letter that he writes in order to say thank you. Now, he says a lot of other stuff we've seen over the last four months along the way. But here at the end, he returns to this issue of giving thanks for the money. And he uses it like Paul often does. He uses the thing at hand to teach about the kingdom of God. And what he does in the last 14 verses of this letter is he offers us a masterclass in kingdom economics. Here he lays out three important teachings in the Bible regarding money and missionary churches. First of all, in verses 10 through 17, we're taught that the financial gifts of a missionary church are an act of partnership in the gospel. They're a way of partnering in the gospel. Notice verse 15. Paul writes, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now here he uses this word partnership. Uh, we're reading it in English. That's a translation. The original is written in Greek. And the Greek word here is koinonia. It's a word that most often is translated fellowship. 
If you're around Christians very much, you'll notice they talk in weird ways. They have weird little sayings. Um, and one of the things they, words they often say was, it was lovely having fellowship with you. Well, no normal person uses that phrase. Only Christians do. And it normally means like um, friendship, warm human connection. But it often adds an element to that where money is a part of the relationship. In other words, this word partnership means friendship, family, caring for each other when we both have financial skin in the game of the relationship. You see, Paul first visited the city of Philippi about five years before he wrote this letter. And he visited the city as a missionary. And you need to just imagine this. This was the first time a Christian went onto the European continent. Paul was the first Christian to make his way into Europe. And the first city he lands in in Europe is Philippi. And the first convert, he shares the gospel, the first person to convert and become a Christian in all of Europe is a businesswoman by the name of, Th- of, Lyd- of Lydia, and she's from the city of Thyatira, but her trade had brought her here to Philippi. And soon a couple of other people convert, and there's like something like 30 Christians at some point. And this little group of Christians is, went under incredible stress and turmoil. Almost from the beginning, they were being persecuted. And the first group to mess with these Christians, to pick on them, to persecute them, were the business owners in Philippi. A business owner had converted. The gospel is about all of life, especially and including the way we handle our money. And because these Christians began to shift the way they were using their money, and they began to talk about this, it began to impact the GDP of Philippi. And so the the business class was not going to go for that. So they had a trump card up their sleeve. And the trump card was if they spread a rumor that these Christians are anti-Rome, that they're um, rebellious against Rome, that they're going to try to incite it. If they in any way made the Roman army in that area think that they were up to no good, then the Roman army would crack down. And so the business owners spread this rumor that um, Paul and these Christians were really trying to lead a rebellion against Rome. So the local government, the army, they arrested the leader. They arrested Paul and his partner, Silas. They stripped them, beat them, and threw them into prison right there in Philippi. Now, if you've read in the book of Acts, God rescues Paul and Silas from prison by using an earthquake and an angel opens the gates and the jailer is watching all of this and he ends up converting and becoming a Christian and Paul and Silas get out of prison. They go to the jailer's house. They baptize him, his whole house. They go back to the, this early church. They check in with them and then they say sayonara and they head on down the road to the next city um, to, to do all of this over again. And then five years later, Paul's been up to that, and he ends up in jail again. It's like, it's like a hobby. And he ends up in jail, this time in Ephesus. 
And the Philippians who love him so much, they're so grateful because he, he told them about Jesus. He brought Jesus to them. The Philippians, they, they, they want to partner with Paul. They want Paul to keep doing this. So they send him money because if he can get money in jail, then he can keep living. And if Paul keeps living, Paul keeps talking like a motor mouth about King Jesus and the gospel. And one of the things about being in jail for Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, was he got a special guard assigned to him. Three men chained to him on rotation. And if you're chained to Paul, the motor mouth is going to tell you about Jesus. And so if they can keep him alive, they can keep him talking. And if he keeps talking, the gospel keeps advancing. And so Paul, they, he gets the money, he can keep eating so he can keep living, so he can keep talking, so the kingdom keep growing, and he writes this letter back to them to say, thank you, thank you for the money. Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. When Paul starts the letter, Philippians 1, 3 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now. And here it's the same word. It's koinonia. It's friendship that has economic skin in the game. That we're friends doing a project together. And the project they're doing together is what? The advance of the gospel. And then, it, and then at the end of the letter. He says in chapter 4 verse 15. You Philippians yourselves know. That in the beginning of the gospel. When I left Macedonia. No church entered into partnership with me. In giving and receiving. Except you only. What we've got to see here, their money was used by Paul to pay the bills, buy food, clothing, medicine. But Paul said the money was partnership in the advance of the gospel. It's very important that we as a church recognize that when we give money, when we give 10% of our income, and it's not a metaphor, it's a mathematical equation. It's income times 0 0.10. <laughs> when we give that money out of obedience, God commands us to tithe to the church. It's not only an act of obedience. It's a way that we, the people in this room, we're piling our money together to partner together in the advance of the gospel. We're using our money for the gospel's advance. Now, what does our church do with that money? We know what Paul did. He bought some medicine because he had cuts. He um, bought some food because he needed to eat, right? He, he paid the guard to not beat him again or whatever. What do we do with the money? Well, our church is very, very generous. This year, something like the church is going to give something like $860,000. Uh, that's what our tithes add up to this year. What does our church do? Well, our church organizes itself by electing a group of people from the congregation to be something called the parish council. And it, it's a group of people in our congregation. It tends to be not eight to nine people, ten people. And they, are in, they manage the money for the whole church. And they manage the money by coming up with a budget, by giving the budget to the church to vote on at the annual celebration. And the church gets to say, yeah, we want to use the money that way or no, we don't want to use the money that way. This year, the way our church, our parish council decided to use the money and was voted on, 26% of our money is going to worship to what we're doing right here. 
23% is going to discipleship, to learning and teaching the Christian faith. 25% is going to evangelism and missions and ministry. 3% is going to that Christian word fellowship. And 22% is going to administration. Now, it's interesting to me that when you read Paul's letter here at the end, and he's saying thank you, and he's saying it's a partnership in the gospel, he spends most of this section trying to avoid misunderstanding. Now, that that caught my... I've never noticed that before until studying the passage this week, but it makes total sense. It's really important for us to avoid misunderstanding with almost a million dollars of yours, isn't it? Like if you've ever given a big gift to somebody or a painful gift, it's so important to say, like to know what this is about and how this is playing out. So what Paul does, starting in verse 10, is he tries to like say, okay, you gave a lot of money. Let's make sure you know and I know what this was for and how it's being used. And what he says is in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've received your, revived your concern for me. Apparently the Philippians had committed to like a five-year capital campaign or something. When Paul was there, they had committed to giving money and they had stopped giving money. And now after a while, suddenly money comes back again. And Paul says, I'm so glad that you've started, you've, you've done this again. And then the first thing he does is in, right after that, he says, you were indeed concerned for me. You just didn't have an opportunity. In other words, he's saying, look, that wasn't like a southern genteel woman's passive aggressive way of saying, where's the money been? I really mean, I understand that you haven't been able to give. Like life happens, right? We make commitments with our money and sometimes stuff happens, right? And we can't see the future. We can't know the future. For some reason, They had ongoing concern, but they had an ongoing inability to give the money. And now finally, they've given it again. So when Paul says, thank you for sending this, it's been a long time. He quickly says, oh, wait, wait, I'm not trying to insult you that you had lost concern for me. Then in verse 11, he says, well, wait a minute. I'm also not speaking like I've been in need. Like, in other words, thanks for finally sending the money. He doesn't want them to think I've been dying over here, right? He says, Uh, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What he's doing here is he's saying, you guys haven't been able to send money for a long time. But I don't want you to feel guilty about that. Because God strengthened me to face the hunger. Do you see how he's being kind? He's like... You haven't been able to send the money. I'm so glad you sent it. That doesn't mean I don't think you weren't concerned. And it also doesn't mean you should feel bad about what I've been going through. Because God has strengthened me to face two challenging situations in life. It is hard to have abundance and be faithful to God. And it is hard to be hungry and be faithful to God. But God's strength has taught me the secret of being content when I have a lot and when I have a little. So don't feel like whatever has kept you from giving for the last few years, don't feel like you've got to like beat yourself over the back with that. And then in verse 14, he says, now wait a minute. I also don't want you to think that I didn't need your money. He says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, 
When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul is saying, yeah, God can strengthen me to be faithful in both hunger and abundance. And I don't want you to think that means that your money didn't help. I needed your help. And I'm grateful for your help. He's, in other words, he's saying, I can be content whether you give the money or not. But I don't want you to think the money was unnecessary. You can feel him walking this fine line, which you totally get. Because if people enter into contracts around money, it has 18 pages of like, not this, not that. This is what we mean. If this happens, right? Money is complex. And it requires these like give and take kind of complicated, nuanced. Okay, are we all on the same page? Now, the first lesson Paul wants us to see, though, in all of this is that that gift was an act of partnership in the gospel. And we need to see that. We need to see that with all the complexity of our gifts to incarnation, to the king, it's fundamentally we are piling our money together for the advance of the kingdom. The second lesson comes in verses 18 through 20, where we see that when we give money to this partnership, it's an act not only of obedience, we're commanded to do this, it's an act not only of partnership, it's also an act of worship. Notice the way Paul describes their financial gift in verse 18. He says, I've received full payment. Like apparently they had committed a pledge. Like you've, you've, you fulfilled your pledge. And more. Some of them gave even more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. And then he, there's a comma. And he throws it into a whole nother gear. A fragrant offering. A, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In that, after that comma, he's quoting Leviticus chapter 1. He's, he's describing, remember, they gave him money. And he calls it a gift. But then he says, comma, it was actually just like when Israel brought its most expensive gift, a bull, and gave it to the priest. And then verse 9 says, and God receives it as a fragrant aroma. That's worship language. So Paul does this amazing move where he's basically saying, it hurts to give 10%. It hurts to give. When I add up how much money my family has given, and I look at my kitchen that's got a drawer missing here and a door that doesn't close there and we have easily given enough money to renovate our kitchen it hurts and sometimes I think about that and sometimes I think about how much did we give this year what were some things we didn't do this year that that could have easily covered Paul says these gifts that you give that are partnerships in the advance of the gospel, I know it hurts. I know that you're, li you know, Janelle and I, we live lower 
a lower kind of economic lifestyle than our peers who make the same amount of money and aren't Christians. Because we give. And it hurts. And Paul says, God knows. And he not only knows, he doesn't just pat you on the head and say, well, wasn't that good for you? He receives it as a fragrant offering. It blesses him. He receives it as an act of worship. You see, I love how he uses the word sacrifice as a double entendre, right? On the one hand, giving generously, 10% and more, is a sacrifice, isn't it? On the other hand, it's a sacrifice to God. Like it's not only a sacrifice to me, it's a thing God receives as an act of worship. Now, look at verse 19. Paul sometimes can write the most bewildering things. Have you ever tried to read Romans or Galatians? It's like, I didn't take algebra. What am I doing in calculus, you know? But sometimes, Paul is just like a teenager in love with Jesus. And my God will supply all, every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. My God, he says. Look, what Paul is doing here is he's talking about the dance of worship. We come with our sacrifice. God receives it. And he's not stingy about it. He pours out back onto us. He will supply every need. Look, I, I can tell you as a personal testimony, you cannot outgive God. My wife and I, we have given so much to King Jesus. And he has given so much back. You cannot outgive God. He sees it. He knows what you're doing. And when it says he will supply every need, he's not just talking about the intangible spiritual stuff. Like he'll give you mercy and he'll, yes, all of that. Forgiveness, grace. But he's also talking about your needs. We're taught to pray in, the, in the, our Father, give us this day our daily bread, which is not like just enough, God. It's give me everything I need to live the life you've called me to live. And then in verse 20, Paul says to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. When I've been reading through Philippians this fall, I've been struck. Paul can't go two sentences without talking about Jesus, without talking about the gospel, without talking to the kingdom. Here Paul is saying, look at this thing that happens in worship. You bring the sacrificial thing, money, money that you could use for other stuff. God receives it. He pours out on you grace. And then Paul's response is glory to God. Like, wow. What, what else can we say than praise God? Paul is saying, I'm so glad I get to live in God's kingdom. That's the second important teaching regarding money in the missionary church. Our tithes and offerings are a partnership in the gospel. And they're an act of worship. And lesson number three, our financial gifts, are, is a, they are a sound investment. We see this. In verses 21 and 22 and 23. Notice verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Now think about this for a minute. The brothers who are with me greet you. When, when Paul got to Philippi five years ago, there were no others. The Philippians were the only Christians in Europe. And now Paul, five years later, is saying, hey, there's been more. You're not alone in this. 
Your investment, your partnership, the gospel has moved forward. Other people have come into the faith. Do you know that our church started 13 years ago? And from that day until now, we have helped through our money 16 churches start. In 2010, there were a group of us, some of us in this room, who started Incarnation. We piled our money together, and this church started. A few years later, some of our people and and our money, we planted a church in East Rockingham, Church of the Lamb. A year after that, we helped start an Arabic-speaking church that's in our congregation, Cush. A year or two after that, um, some people from our church, we started... Holy Cross in Crozet. Um, about a year after that, our parish council supported and helped financially a Mennonite church start in Harrisonburg, Mosaic of Grace. About a year after that, um, a bunch of people from our church, we started a church in Stanton, Restoration. Um, a couple of years ago, we, we used our money and our resources to partner with others to help plant Resurrection, a church in Charlottesville. Now, Cush, this Arabic-speaking church, along the way, they themselves have started seven churches up and down the eastern seaboard. Luke, our very first curate, left us and went to Texas and helped plant a church there. And now he's helping another church that had died be revitalized. And right now, our pastors are helping a Lutheran church in Harrisonburg get started. Planting churches costs a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, a lot of money, a lot of time. Our money has done amazing work. And so in verse 22, all the saints greet you. We're not alone. The gospels move forward. And then look what he says, especially those of Caesar's household. It's one of my favorite sneaky things that Paul does in his letters, especially those of Caesar's household. Caesar's household, those, that's the army. Those are the guards that are holding Paul in prison, right? Remember, the Philippians are a church in, the, in a Roman colony, and they're being persecuted by Rome. And Paul is sitting in a Roman jail being persecuted. And Jesus was killed by Roman soldiers. And yet, people in Caesar's own household are converting, The gospel is penetrating into the very heart of the Roman imperial apparatus. Concealed in that little phrase is a powerful symbol of the day when even Rome, the seat of imperial power, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This year, through our rector's discretionary fund, so we take up this special offering on fifth Sundays and special services. This is in addition to our tithes. You have given $84,000. We've given it all away almost. Very little is left. 8% of that is going to help people with therapy and counseling. 6% of that is going to help people... um, Avoid being kicked out of their rental locations because they're behind on rent. 2% for temporary lodging. 2% to help people with utilities. 11% has gone to help teenagers go to youth camp who needed some financial help and help adults in our church to go to conferences that would be good for them. 5% of that 84000 has been used for medical and dental care. 
11% for just a whole bunch of things like somebody's house burned down. It didn't help with the burning of the house. It helped with the recovery, um, gas, daily supplies at Walmart. 56% of that 84,000 we've given to immigrants and refugees, establishing citizenship, helping to secure apartments, our brothers and sisters in Cush. And the list goes on. And did you know this morning, this morning in just the churches that Incarnation has helped plant in just this area, over 800 people are at worship. That doesn't have, that doesn't even count Bishop Andudu, who we support through all of this, baptized a thousand people into the Christian faith in Sudan this year. Our money is being used. This is a sound investment. Your sacrificial giving giving is really being used by God to advance the gospel. Notice the final verse of the letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Remember how I said that 26% of our money went to worship in this room, paying these bills, keeping this room up, paying salaries of some people who do some things in here. Every Sunday when we gather and worship, we receive grace for the journey. By the way, that's what that line is. You know, at the end of our service, when we say go in grace and peace, love and serve the Lord, we got this from this. This letter that Paul wrote the Philippians was read in Sunday in worship. And the last thing they heard was grace, grace to you. It's not just a piece of rhetoric, it's a prayer. And the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And God promised in Leviticus that when his priest pronounced grace, God seals his name on his people. When we come into this, how many times have you come into this room and God was kind to you? And you experienced forgiveness. And you learned more about his kingdom. And you had the warm embrace of a friend. And you were reminded once again... That when the dust settles, there will be glory to God forever and ever. And once again, you were lifted a little bit up out of the mire. And once again, you were fed at his table. And once again, you sang the praises of God and you just knew that God is God and you are here and he loves you. Think of all the grace that has been poured out into your life. When we give our money, it's not just a partnership in the gospel and, and it's not just an act of worship. It's a sound investment. The gospel's moving forward. Grace is being poured out. People are being taken care of. So that's the third lesson. In so many ways, our financial gifts are a sound investment. And like Paul said, the fruit increases to your credit. Three lessons on money in the missionary church. Now, look, I I feel this kind of, first of all, if you're a guest, I'm sorry you showed up on the day I'm talking about money. How awkward is that? Um, And those of you who brought friends, you're just sinking down. Um, uh, Yeah. Secondly, some people I think right now are feeling very encouraged. And I know that some people right now, I know that this can be like just heavy, like you feel guilty. Because life circumstances get in the way. Here's what I hope from this passage. I hope for me and my wife. I hope for my children. I hope for you. That we hear in this God's goodness. And we all think, how can I make some different choices next year? 
How can I commit to one less streaming service? How can I recognize that when I encumber myself to mortgage and car note, I am pre-committing my money? And I, I need to think about how I can recognize my money as an opportunity for partnership in the gospel, for worshiping God. It's a sound investment. And don't look at this as like bad. Pray and just say, God, I, I wish I'd made different choices so that I could give more. Help me this year to just like one degree better. Like God, Psalm 103, he remembers we're made from the dust. He gets it. He knows. You hear that? Riley said, right on. <laughs> Let's pray.